This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, this is the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of E.L. James's novel, Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm joined here in Slate's DC recording studio by Hannah Rosen, Slate's double X editor. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Dan. And in our New York studio, we have Megan O'Rourke, culture critic for Slate. Hi, Megan. Hi, Dan. Welcome, everyone, to the Red Room of Pain. We are here to discuss the gazillion-selling erotica Fifty Shades of Grey, the first in a trilogy of books that began as Twilight fan fiction and have turned into a phenomenon all their own. Fifty Shades is about Anastasia Steele, our innocent virginal heroine, a senior about to graduate from college, and Christian Grey, millionaire industrialist who can't keep his hands off her nor his riding crops or floggers or belts. Beads, eggs. Beads, eggs. (laughs) everything and his hands christian is a dom he wants anastasia to be his sub but she wants more and the plot tension in the novel derives from whether they can find a way to love each other that satisfies both his needs and hers hannah i'm going to start with you because you wrote about 50 shades a couple of months ago and you wrote about anna in particular our heroine is not one of fabio's ravishing redheads or raven beauties she says things like holy crap and writes witty emails She has never really been kissed or even tempted, preferring to spend her evenings in the library. She is pale and scruffy and so uncoordinated that when she first meets Christian, she trips and falls onto the floor. She is, in other words, all brain. And the point of her is to show that any woman can override her intellectual mind and give herself over to pure sensation. Whether this constitutes an insult to thinking women everywhere is sort of beside the point. But, Hannah, I don't know that it necessarily is beside the point. And now that this book has sold trillions of copies and all these women everywhere on the subway and in my neighborhood and everywhere are reading this book. And these are thinking women like you. Were you in the end any way, in any way taken in by the book's charms or by Christian Gray's charms? Or were you simply too annoyed by the power dynamics or the <laughs> language to ever really enjoy this book? You know, you want to talk about this book and not seem like a pretentious asshole. So I'm not going to start by going on and on about how badly written it is. But I did at some point reconsider the question about whether this had deeper sociological meaning. In other words, whether it meant something that many of my friends are really drawn to this book and reading it, given what it contains. But I ultimately concluded that it's not an insult to thinking women everywhere. And I think E.L. James plays with this question a lot in the book by you know the dom sub relationship much as it is in girls between Hannah and Adam switches a lot and so he does talk a lot about you know you have bewitched me i mean she knows that we're conscious of this and so she gives Anna the reins a lot like Anna never sort of shuts her mind down about what she's doing and how fucked up it is i mean throughout the book she throws that back in his face and throughout the book he says are you kidding you think i have the power you know you have utterly bewitched me and the power is all in your hands, my innocent Anna. You know, as opposed to say the story of O, which a thinking woman reading the story of O, which is a, uh, I think it's a 1950s French mm-hmm. novel. Do I have the decade right? Yes. And 
it's horrifying. I mean, she's shoved into a cab and gang raped repeatedly. And you really have to wonder why would anyone read this? You know, that's not the way E.L. James sets up Anna. She's much more relatable. Right. It's The book really seems to be meant to ask women readers, well, what would you do if you were in this situation? Right. I right. Mean, exactly. You know, her responses are meant to mirror our own responses in many ways and the reader's responses in many ways, male or female. Yeah. Like her response entering the Red Room of Pain and seeing all the whips is basically some version of holy crap. Like what's wrong with this psycho, you know? Right. Megan, one of the things that really interested me about the book and something I wanted to ask you about was the relationship that she has, that Anna has with literature. She's an English literature major. She just is finishing a paper on Tess as the book opens. And there's this one line that made me laugh in the book. Intentionally where, made oh, you yeah, laugh? Oh, yeah. I think intentionally. Well, we'll talk about the humor in this book later because I think that it's a lot funnier than people are giving it credit for. But there is this line that made me laugh possibly both unintentionally and intentionally. She was comparing herself and her situation to the heroines of her favorite novels and how they would have behaved were they approached by Christian Grey in this manner. <laughs> and she says, uh, Elizabeth Bennett would be outraged, Jane Eyre too frightened, and Tess would succumb, just as I have. Megan, do you buy that? Well, she's wrong about Jane Eyre. So that was my first reaction to that line. <laughs> I was like, actually, I, I kind of liked the way that the English literature worked throughout until that line where I was like, that's a terrible reading of who Jane Eyre is. So then I lost all faith in this part of the Wait, book. what did she say about Jane Eyre? She, she said that she'd be too frightened. Jane Eyre is not a oh. no scaredy cat. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, that's exactly the opposite. It's a classic romance strategy, right? I mean, it just happens to be that she's an English literature major, but she's the naive, pure, virginal woman and Tess in particular, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Thomas Hardy's book, is set up as the kind of counterpoint to this book because in that book, Tess is destroyed basically by sex. So that's the fear here, right? The kind of leitmotif of fear that this encounter with this rakish Christian Grey will will destroy her. And I think that's always the subliminal fear in a romance novel. And it's very much one of the ones here. For what it's worth, as I was just saying to you guys beforehand, I thought this book was really different from what I had imagined it to be. In what way? That's interesting. Well, two ways. And Dan, you were just getting at this. But everyone seemed so shocked by it. So I thought that the shocking part of the book, not having read it, was that she's in this intense dom-sub relationship. But really, the book is mostly about talking about this intense dom-sub relationship that they kind of only indulge in three times. And Right. It's about negotiating. Well, first of all, this book is about the eros of money and capital more than the eros of sex, I think. Second of all, because Christian Grey is constantly described in these kind of lavish terms of luxury, and the first thing she notices when they're about to make love is how big his bed is and how fancy and how fancy the room is that he's in. The second thing is that she's not a submissive. So you don't have to identify with submission to be reading this book. I, I think that one of the things that readers are really identifying with is it's a very well-crafted romance novel that happens to have this extremely strange contractual negotiation that starts very early on about her being his sub and him being the dom. But they, they never fully enter that relationship. The book is about kind of Anna wanting to change Christian, and she keeps calling him the Dark Knight, which made me think, unfortunately, of Batman, and uh, wanting to change him and bring him into the light. And that, again, seems to me like the classic romance plot. I definitely agree there are certain things about this book that are surprising and shocking, but I had imagined we were going to have to identify with the submissiveness and also that there would be much more of that kind of hardcore BDSM stuff, which 
to me, there didn't seem like there was that much of it given the fuss. She pushes that away constantly. Yeah. It's like she She's pushes not... it away. So she doesn't let Anna ever suspend her surprise. And actually reading this the second time around, because yes, I did read it twice, the end <laughs> is when it really struck me that this was an utterly classic romance novel, that she's making you think about you know the classic themes, like this is a woman who wants to change a man and she can't be exactly what he wants. And you know he's got this troubled soul. You know, Gray has a sad side, you know. And then all the things are there, and then the sex is just kind of extra. Yeah. You know what I couldn't make sense of is the money, like the excessive attention to the rules and like the pages of those legal documents in the middle of the book. What do we make of that? Because it's strange. Like either E.L. James is like deep in the subculture and that's what you do. It's kind of – it's a weird like authenticity bore moment where she has pages and pages of hard rules. Well, there's something really canny about this book, I do think. I mean, first of all, I think it should be 300 pages, not 500 because Mm -hmm. I'll be the asshole who complains about the writing. We'll get to that later. (laughs) Anyway, but you know, the that contractual part of it is fascinating. And it, to me, it was the way in which this was very much the book of 2012. Like this is a book about transactions mm-hmm. and romance and kind of finding romance in a tra- highly transactional age. And in that, I think, is a big part of what people are relating to. Like that transactional piece is so strange and it is really off-putting and it makes him seem creepy. And that's what a lot of the charge is, right, is that on the other hand, he's not just that creepy guy that would be the guy in the story of, oh, he's constantly like bringing her presents and he brings her an Audi and he brings her a Blackberry he brings her a MacBook and he, you know, brings her clothes and he says things to her like, your body is a joy to behold. You should never be self-conscious of it. And so, so much of their their courtship is actually totally traditional and conservative, offset against this very strange, creepy, long – not creepy. I shouldn't say that. But for her, creepy because it's so clinical contract. And I do think that's what a lot of the charge is, is that the reader, like Anna, is trying to reconcile those two pieces of him. And is that meant to reference something like internet dating? I mean, something like I'm presenting myself here, we're making a transaction. I Is that what the transactional part is referring to? Because so much of their, the weird part is that he's got this extremely formal persona. You know, he's like right. the 007 boss or something. The way he talks in the beginning is, is extremely unnatural. And he's young. So he's not like yeah. a 50 year old man, right? He's a, yeah. he's an early 30s man. And 27. Yet, 27. 27. He's really young. True? He's, he's really young. Yeah. yeah, he's in his late 20s. And then the emails are, you know, relatable and totally informal. And there's a totally different playful voice between them in the But emails. even those are like sort of fetishistically detailed in the novel right down to like his footer or signature in every yeah, right. single email. <laughs> oh my God, and I sometimes he changes it like for laughs. But like yeah. I like the idea of this as like a chronicle of transactional relationships because you're right that that even in those emails – you see the constant negotiation that they go through. And it, for me, was a mirror of their behavior in the bedroom, except for that it was her constantly pushing his limits in those emails mm-hmm. the way that he pushed hers in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is important also to acknowledge that in the BDSM community, it is transactional in a certain sense in that you have safe words and you you have hard limits. I mean, that is coming also from that world. So it's not just a metaphor for other things. Is that because, you know, the way that one always talks about how relationships have no rules and actually that very old fashioned romance that they also enact in which he saves her from, you know, cyclists and he rescues her from various situations and whisks her away in the helicopter, that actually completely completely doesn't exist. And so now that we're in a world in which relationships are actually difficult to navigate and there aren't that many rules, there comes to be this attraction for like a highly rigid, you know, rule dominated kind of relationship. There are a lot of things that are problematic about Christian Gray as a boyfriend, but you would never be confused about where you stand. Right, right. 
it is his dominance in a certain way. It's that he, the way he wants her to wear certain clothes and drink certain wine. I mean, there's this kind of fantasy of education, right? She's this young girl. She's not wealthy and she doesn't know anything about wine and she you know, she doesn't have a nice car. And there's, there is, I think, in this, as you're saying, Hannah, this like kind of complicated world in which everyone's negotiating, like, does the guy pay for the date or not? You know, mm-hmm. I think that probably one of the reasons this book is popular is that there is this dominant submissive element in their everyday life, too, in the sense that she's fighting against it, but he's wants to give her these things, right? And when you read, like, Kinsey reports or various studies, like, overwhelmingly women are much more likely to fantasize about submission than men are, right? Men are much more likely to fantasize about domination. Right. So it's definitely tapping into that kind of, you know, in this world of chaos and and kind of ever-shifting gender relations. I do think it's tapping into this desire for not necessarily like sexual control in the bedroom, but just a man who knows what he's doing. There's that one passage in the book where he basically says all, you know, Anna, all these things that you're struggling with, all these things that you're fighting against – the whole point of you submitting would be that you just wouldn't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Exactly. And I will say that I'm not a woman, but I would love it if at some point exactly. I did not have to worry about all that shit anymore. <laughs> right. It's the paradox of choice compelling. problem. Right. Well, I actually I – was, I was thinking very specifically about like what would part of it would I be into. I'm not talking about the sex. I'm just talking about you know the somebody giving – like doing things for you. Right. Like I would take the laptop, right? Sure. I would not <laughs> – I would not take his exercise instructions. I wouldn't take the car. What about the first editions, the uh... – the first, they, edition. the, the first editions would be all right. Yeah. And then okay. that, that weirdly girlish sense of like, you can de- decorate your own room. I love that line. It's like, <laughs> she's five years old. <laughs> you can I put strawberry creepiest... shortcake on your wall. If you I, well, for what it's worth, I thought the creepiest thing, the only thing that I, I mean, the contract seemed like this kind of BDSM contract that's like, I don't know whether it goes down like that. But I was like, okay, maybe, you know, I can see why he would need this. And if you're into it, that would be fine. But the part that bothered me was the birth control pill. I was like, I wouldn't want to be forced by some man to put a birth control pill in my body. Right. <laughs> because he's so intrusive. There is something so intrusive about him. And that's the part that, that feels But that's an interesting Anna. thing to do, right? Like for mm-hmm. E.L. James, I mean, that she's playing with this fantasy that she knows is persistent. And it is. Like sex researchers study this fantasy. The domination fantasy is utterly persistent. And E.L. James plays it out in exactly the way that it shows up in the sex yeah. research lab, which is that the pleasure of the domination fantasy for women is very specifically that someone wants you and you only so right. much that they are willing to kind of like give up all things, you know, just for you. They're singularly focused on you. And so that's how that fantasy works. And she's playing with that. And then E.L. James is asking, well, like, how far will you take it? Like, you know, will you let him order up a doctor to give you birth control? Like, how far do you want to push this fantasy? So touching back for a moment on something that you mentioned, Megan, and that we touch on a little, I was interested by my own response to one particular aspect of this book, which is how much more uncomfortable I was made by this book, by like the displays of overt wealth than I was by basically anything that happened in the Red Room of Pain. This notion of him buying her stuff and giving her an Audi and the way that she responded to it at first and rejected everything that he gave her and, you know, in the end said, sure, I'll take this Blackberry as a loan or whatever. And then, of course, at the end of the novel, which we'll spoil here, the end of the novel is them breaking up, presumably for the moment, because there's two more volumes of the series. <laughs> but at the end, she gives everything back and she can't take his things. I'm sure that that won't last forever. I'm sure that by the end, she'll still be driving that Audi. But like... Did it make you guys as uncomfortable as I did that there was this – not even an undercurrent but a a solid 
current of wealth and privilege running through this book that she, as part of this submission, is being forced to partake in. Well, it's not privilege. It's just wealth. I mean, it would have been very different if she had set him up as a character who comes from a rich family and was not self-earned. That actually does make it different because then I think it becomes about Anna – Finding herself versus sort of entering into a world that's already made for her, which is like, you know, think of Girls, the HBO series Girls again in this context. Is well, like, his world is pretty made for her, though. That's I what mean, I'm saying. Yeah. Even So it's not privilege. It becomes about her. It, it becomes it's about extreme wealth, though. Right. Yeah. He's so utterly self-made and damaged that his extreme wealth is slightly different than the extreme wealth of like if she were, you know, if there was a Kennedy offering this to her. I don't know. It doesn't feel that different to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just because it's money and cars and right. No, right. but I think that's meant to be important. We we find out that he's the child of – I think it's a crack whore, right? I believe he literally says crack whore, yes. Yeah. So that seems like it's part of it. But one of the very explicit themes of this book is that Anna feels like she's a whore. One of the most – elaborated conversations they have is spurred by the fact that she writes him an email implying that she feels like a whore, that she's being kind of paid for sex. It is a romance, right? And romance is about fantasizing on lots of different levels. And so Christian, it seems to me, is set up as, I mean, in a certain way, he's the er-romance hero because he's wealthy. He's extremely handsome. You know, she keeps describing it as a gray gaze. I had a hard time imagining what that actually was. But his eyes are gray. He's steely. He's, you know, he. I'm trying to um, do one right now. It's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> they're also hooded. And by also the way. hooded. They're hooded. They're whatever. But he falls completely for her. And their first sexual encounter is straight out of like a Harlequin romance, down to the feather light kisses that are placed all over her neck and body. I mean, that was not what I was expecting right, having right. read this book. Right? It's like this vanilla sex, as he puts it. But it's very like he's into it, and he's and again the kind of trapping. I think the money stuff goes hand in hand with these. This fantasy of the kind of parceling of the fantasy that he has just fallen for this girl. She has no money. So she keeps thinking, why would he want me? I'm not sophisticated. I'm not elegant. But that's the fantasy, right? That this sophisticated rich man finds this girl in her scruffy jeans and her, you know, never wears makeup and kind of picks her out and says, you are the one and you are the only one. And I will make all these exceptions for you and I will change, except maybe I can't. So the money... Yeah, I guess I just read it as part of that trope. It just says something about me, I guess, that I was made so much more queasy by the notion that the secret fantasy of every woman is to have someone buy her an Audi, yeah. et cetera, no, than I mean, that, I mean, that the secret troubling. fantasy is just submitted in the right. bedroom. Like. Right. I totally agree. I mean, to me, that was the most notable part of this book was how much it was about the fantasy of having money. I don't know what happens in the later novels, but she never incorporates that into her life or her character or her person. We never see her become the person who is more sophisticated and has a lot of money. Like she takes the actual things, but she's still herself. But she's drinking the wine and she starts wearing Kate's dresses and Yeah, and I guess right? she says, Oh my god, she wears oysters. the fancy underwear right. and right. she's le- I mean she's letting Christian's manservant, whatever his name is, right. like cart her around and pick her up at the airport and right. let and she's well, to the point of letting him call her Miss Steele because he's more comfortable doing right. that than calling her Anastasia. But also I do think that fantasy is about holding two different things in mind and it's about kind of conflict and desire, right? Which is to say that it's important that she also keeps being like I can stay with my VW. I want to drive myself home. Like we would relate less to her. We wouldn't like her if she weren't having a struggle over this. Right, right. right but right. we want the fantasy of like you walk in and he smells like some expensive soap. Like she keeps saying things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Not like he's dirty and whatever, but he's hot. You know. Right. The other thing I'll say about this book is that it's so boring for the first hundred pages because it's just this endless 
setup. Like, right. it's so repetitive. She says the same thing over and over, like, four times on the first page. So I was – I kind of wanted it to move along a little bit more. Yeah, and then the sort of the introdu- – this sort of aggressive introduction of banality, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, is it time to do a little reading? The one that I'm going to read is on page 119. This is the sort of worst of the cliches, and I'm I'm only going to read two little passages, but – Come for me, Anna, he whispers breathlessly. I'm just counting the cliches here. And I unravel at his words, exploding around him as I climax and splinter into a million pieces. I started skipping over the sex because at a certain point I was like, this isn't sexy. She anymore. splinters into boring. so many pieces. She splinters <laughs> into so many pieces. I, it's like hard to imagine because there's so much. Um, and then later, wait, just later, just one more. My favorite one, because I can't figure out why she does this. It's like, you know, in sort of old crime detective novels when they like keep telling you the brand of the cigarette or like when they aggressively introduce brands it's two orgasms coming apart at the seams like the spin cycle on a washing machine wow wow no then she adds <laughs> wow right <laughs> <laughs> um actually hannah that was what i was going to read because i wrote that when i was like what the fuck you mean the spin <laughs> cycle language, on a washing machine? i actually <laughs> coming up also mixed metaphor coming apart at the seams like a spin cycle no no no. A spin i actually have seams <laughs> do you know i actually went down to my oh, laundry no. machine after i read that <laughs> because i was trying to figure out i put it on the spin cycle and i was like what actually happens on the spin cycle like where did this inspiration come from like does something like does it spin in both directions i just had no idea what she meant by this. Well, the writing in this book is not what recommends it. You know, I think it's it's the canny construction of a romance narrative and the kind of titillation. And for those who aren't, you know, reading this as people engaged in the BD, I would be very curious to talk to someone in the BDSM community about like what they think of this book. I'm sure they'd have all sorts of like very specific complaints yeah, like, you know, right. would never hard limit three would never appear right. in a contract. Well, and also because what's interesting about this story and one of the things that Anna has trouble with is that he's had a relationship with 15 subs before her who are true subs. So he didn't have to have this kind of negotiation like that. And he has this line where she's kind of shocked and he's like, you have no idea how easy it is to find them, which is, of course, totally true because there are you know, many different kinds of sexual predilections out there. And it's easy to find the people you want to be with. So but she's not. And so I think this book is for the romance reader. But it's obviously gone beyond that, though. I mean, I feel like this has also become the romance novel for people who would never otherwise have read a romance novel. What I do think is interesting is that a lot of people read it and then read the next two. So it's obviously working. One thing I noticed reading it the second time around is how He's really not indifferent to her pleasure. That's I was trying to think of why this is pleasing to people and why so many women read it. You know, he thinks about her pleasure a lot, and her pleasure is is very central to this novel. I mean, it's all about her sexual awakening, really. So, Megan, you said you basically stopped reading the sex scenes because you couldn't take it anymore. But I noticed that in nearly every sex scene in this book, her orgasm is almost always keyed to him saying something. Like she'll be mm-hmm. like on the edge, and then he has to say something to like trigger her. Which I thought was just a very surprising image for a book that I agree, Hannah, is generally about her pleasure and her discovery of that. But she needs it to be him. And I guess that's part of the point of this whole book and its whole its whole notion that they are so electrically connected to each other that the first time they touch, they feel this magical whatever, blah, blah, blah. I want to read my um, favorite part of the book mm. because it was a part that I actually did legitimately like and does touch on something that I th- – that I didn't expect in this book, which is that it is occasionally slyly funny on purpose in the same way that we're meant to read Anastasia's responses to the Red Room of Pain and things like that as being similar to how we would feel. We're also meant to view her as a character who finds herself stuck in a romance novel who never expected to be stuck in a romance novel. And so there's this bit on page 25 where 
she's working at the hardware store and it's after her interview of Christian Grey and and he all of a sudden shows up at the hardware store, you know, 500 miles away from where she first met him. And um, they have this charged conversation and she says she has like heart failure when she sees his intense gray gaze. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, she sees him and Mr. Gray, I whisper because that's all I can manage. There's a ghost of a smile on his lips and his eyes are light with humor as if he's enjoying some private joke. I was in the area, he says by way of explanation. I need to stock up on a few things. It's a pleasure to see you again, <laughs> Miss Steele. His voice is warm and husky, like dark melted chocolate fudge caramel or something. Right. <laughs> and I loved that. I mean, it read to me as exactly the kind of like totally ridiculous thing that someone who cannot believe she is feeling these stupid feelings would say. And then, of course, that whole scene is very funny as he takes her around the store and like buys cable ties. Cable ties. And then, <laughs> then when she takes him to the rope and he's like, I'll take five feet of natural <laughs> filament rope, please. <laughs> and that just scene just made me laugh and laugh. And I feel like there is more humor about this and more humor about her situation than I ever would have expected in this book. And I certainly won't argue that the writing is great or even that it's not bad. But I do think that it is at times extremely enjoyable and not just on a pure plot, let's find out what happens next basis. Okay, let's go back to that or something because yeah. I, I really think you have a point there. Like, what, <laughs> Is that or something kind of Anna running out of dumb dessert metaphors? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, but right. I mean in the way that – There's a lot of that would. in the book. In yeah. that ridiculous situation. I mean, I want. Well, I have I think... a little counter here. It's at the end. It's it's very similar to the one that Dan just read. It's on page five hundred and seven, where she, you know, the whole thing is coming apart, and she realizes she really doesn't want to be hit that way. And it's the last line in the book, and it says, "I did follow my heart, and I have a sore ass." <laughs> now, and an anguished, broken well, the spirit. Anguished, broken spirit is what killed it for me. It would have been so much funnier if she'd written, "I did follow my heart, and I have a sore ass to show for it." But then she added that stupid, anguished, broken. Spirit spirit, which kind of ruined the line for me, you know? I think that's a big part of its appeal, for sure, is that it's so companionable on that level. Like, it just seems like how... Like, that's what I was surprised by in this book. I thought it was going to be this much more kind of story of O light, which it really doesn't feel to me like it's even that. It's it's more this kind of being in the head of a woman who's thinking about kind of sex in all these different ways and thinking about romance in all these different ways and then also has to think about these other levels of pain and fear. And But it's all the things that, you know, women go into a relationship wondering about, which is like, is he going to hurt me? How far is this going to go? Like, does he love me? Does he not love me? Is this just, is he just using me? Right. These are all her con- her concerns. Right. But, but it becomes funny and companionable because there are lines like, I followed my heart and I have a sore <laughs> ass to show for it. Instead right. of like, I followed my heart and it got broken. Right. right. So that I totally agree, Dan, that there's a lot in it that, you know, I was very amused by it. You're right that it didn't need to be 500 pages long. It Although just, there's no one like, else who's reading me? this who's complaining that it's 500 pages Ugh. long. Yeah, I mean, if you don't know that this is a BDSM novel and you just read the very last scene, you know, without knowing she's just been hit, it's just the end of every single romance novel in the world. You know, I can't stay. I know what you want and you can't give it to me and I can't right. give you what you need. You know, it's just completely generic uh, romance unraveling at that point. But there's a real modern spirit to the writing, too, which comes from this notion, I think, that in a lot of ways the unintentional laughs in this novel are meant to be the same lines as the intentional laughs. I mean, I think it works. I think the writing is very self-aware in a way mm-hmm. that I didn't expect a novel like this to be. It's so that it's aware of the tropes that it's exploiting. It's also aware of the ridiculousness of those tropes. And I think a lot of that comes from its origin as fan fiction, which, I mean, 
as someone who pays a lot of attention to culture and the and fandom in particular, that was one of the aspects of this that was really interesting to me. And I'd love to talk about that a little bit if we can. You know, for readers who don't know, Fifty Shades of Grey was born initially as a trilogy called Master of the Universe by E.L. James, but under her pen name, her fan fiction pen name, which was Snow Queen's Ice Dragon. And it is Twilight fan fiction. The original version of this book did not have Christian and Anastasia. It had Bella and Edward, except for it's a part of the genre of Twilight fan fiction called all human fan fiction, which the idea of it is, is it takes the vampires of Twilight and makes them into humans so the characters can have actual relationships that aren't just all about will I turn into a vampire and things like that. And there have been... I mean, reams of these things written in which Edward is a dentist or Edward is a barber, (laughs) Edward is a businessman or whatever. And this was one example where Bella is a college student and Edward is this amazing millionaire industrialist she meets and um, they fall into this BDSM relationship. And, you know, Christian Gray is not a vampire. He's There's, in fact, a whole point made of how, how hot he is. Yes, his body heat when he sleeps is so dramatic. But he shares a lot of characteristics with Edward. He's brilliant and he's gorgeous. He's so gorgeous that it takes her breath away. He's fabulously wealthy. He even eats venison at one point, just like <laughs> Edward does. He doesn't have to hunt it down, though. You know, what I was intrigued by was this inversion of the relationship that Bella and Edward have in that Christian does not withhold sex. But he's just as controlling as Edward is. There's still that undertone of controlling behavior. And, and also you have to enter my world, right? right? If you have to pay the ticket and pay right. the price and come into my very particular right. world. Right. He's completely domineering in that way. Um, you know. And so I found that really interesting. And, and I feel like there's – that is where a lot of the modernity of this book comes from is from this notion of this book originally was one thing and another. It was already – it was already a spin on another story. It's a lot like Twilight. I mean, it's not in its particulars, but the romance dynamics are actually quite similar to Twilight. Yeah. Like she's this, you know, down to the fact that she's so uncoordinated, which must be a leftover from its existence of as fan fiction. Right. I mean, even their first moment where he rescues her from the bike is like an extremely pedestrian version of Edward stopping a speeding car from hitting her. The thing that's interesting to me, and, and it's actually kind of interesting in terms of thinking about it as fan fiction and also thinking about the way that sort of S&M can be sort of a niche culture within um, broader sexual practices is, you know, that Hana, to go back to something you were saying, like one of the kind of things that we have to wrestle with reading the book and reading the book as a cultural phenomenon is that it's kind of post-1970s, post you know, sexual revolution. And if there's always this element in romance novels of often a dominant element is the kind of submissive woman who's separated from the man in some way, that there's some kind of connection, but deep ag. It's like there has to be a device that separates because the separation isn't that the man and woman aren't like totally attracted to each other and want each other, but the woman often feels that he doesn't want her or feels that he's inaccessible, right? And you can't just do it these days with class, right? It's not like Tess where yeah. you can say, you know, she has a title and right. he's put off by her title or he do- he has a title and she right. doesn't. So there isn't right. an easy way to create a kind of artificial separation. Right. Even like the minor scandals of right. Austin that drive people apart are like nothing in the modern world. You right. can use those. Right. Either. And even race, actually, you can't do that, right? So you don't have that many options. Right. I think that's why, you know, Twilight rings such a bell beyond the kind of adolescent girl being worried about sex and kind of wanting it but being scared by it. But also, like, because he's so – Edward is so other, she can, like, really want him without seeming like she's – I don't know. It's it's not as – That's the obstacle, right? That's the obstacle. And also it's not as kind of threatening – 
in a feminist way, right? Because he's just other, even though that's one of the critiques of the book. Right. And so then the question with this is... Wait, can you this, explain that again? Explain that again, Megan. Well, I think because he's a vampire, right? <laughs> you know, Anna. Kristen Stewart can say, <laughs> but Kristen Stewart can say, as she just did in some magazine that I was reading at the gym, that she sees Bella as very feminist because it's brave for her to choose this and to want it. Oh, right? I see. Right. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, rather yeah. than just being like, I'm leaving everything for a man, you can be like, there's this element of bravery and, you know, choice and blah, 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 blah. Right. I'm taking a great risk. Right. That that makes right. sense, actually. I think that's Kristen Stewart's reading of Bella, at least. Right. Well, I think that's a lot so, of people's reading yeah, of Bella. Yeah, honestly. exactly. Exactly. So then the question is with this, right, I think that's one of the reasons this book has caused such a scandal because, again, like, you go through and you count it. There's, like, I think he spanks her twice and then there's the kind of scene at the end where she asks him to – spoiler, but she's been so nervous about pain – that she basically asks him to do what would be the most painful thing he might ever do to her. And he kind of flogs her with a belt. Belt, yeah. And it's very painful. And she decides that he's disgusting and tells him that and leaves. You need to sort your shit out, Gray. Right. You need to sort- I loved that moment. She's like, you perv. <laughs> but there's actually not that much of that stuff in the book. Like most of it is these moments where they're like in the bath soaping one another or, you know, or it's like light, you know, he ties her wrists with a tie, you know, that kind of thing. But we have to wrestle with, right, like is this, there's this incredible anxiety around it. Like what does it mean that we're reading this, right, that we have to wrestle with? And what does it mean? I mean, especially as compared to Twilight where if if the vampirism is the other there and the BDSM is the other here, in Twilight she eventually – Accepts it, right? She becomes a vampire. And this, the whole struggle, at least in this first book, ends the opposite way with her wholesale rejecting that. And indeed, it seems like the course of this entire series is going to be her finding a way to bend him to what she wants in the end to, as he says, to offering more, more than he's willing to offer. And so in some ways, I mean, I I think that's an intriguing direction for this to go and an intriguing choice I guess, feminist choice for her to make and and a more traditional one in that she's just not willing to accept the subjugation or a man who wants to cause her pain regardless of what what deep, dark things happened to him in his past that has caused him to be like that. Right. I mean, the other feminist subcurrent is about bodies, right? Like that's why these heroines are clumsy. It's like they're they're sort right. of not comfortable with their bodies. And then, you know, what he does is he puts her in touch with her body and gives her this right. revelation. But then at the end, there comes this, like, you can't do that to my body. Like he's pushed right. with the birth control. And at right. the end, it's like she draws her limits, you know, and there's exactly. something very like classically post-70s feminist about this and, you know, Bridget Jones is awkward and, you know, Twilight Her- – like they're yeah. all awkward right. girls. I also think that that this book would be a much different cultural artifact if – I think it's really crucial and I was really surprised having read all the stuff about it and the kind of scandal about it. I think it's really crucial that most of the sex they have at the beginning is on her terms. He says, I'm not going to have sex with you unless it's this kind of sex and you have signed this contract and then right away breaks it. And so she is actually getting her way from the very start. Like he then is like, come to my mom mom's house like right. you know after he's <laughs> the mom scenes are so weird <laughs> you know what I mean? oh, I was like, this is like the fantasy of a boyfriend like you sleep together and then he's like i want you to meet my parents and here's a laptop right. <laughs> you know, like, so i think it's it's really like in all the kind of you know discussion of the scandal of this book like why are so many women drawn to a book about this controlling man actually she it's really it, it's really about her controlling him and even though he's like i am this incredibly you know, specific sexual person and I don't have girlfriends, he immediately is her boyfriend pretty much. 
a woman wrote this book. And it's a similar thing that happens with, again, girls and Lena Dunham, right? That she creates this male character who is who is like, <laughs> you know, who is completely controlling and seems like a jerk of a boyfriend. But then ultimately she gets her way. She turns him into what she wants him to be, as Anna does in this book. Well, that leads me to a question I wanted to ask you guys, which is Universal and Focus have bought the film rights to Fifty Shades of Grey. Can this be a movie? Can you see this as like a successful R-rated romance that people will flock to? Sure. I was thinking about it in relation to The Hunger Games, right? Like how they managed to portray children killing other children in a way that was acceptable for that yeah. rating, right? right? So right. like how can you do this in a way that's not going to get it an X rating? Like how can you show – you can certainly do yeah. this first book, right? Yeah. And also I think like most of the sex in this book, like it's a little like kinky or titillating. But like I, I think that's – a lot of it is pretty unsurprising to most Americans. But like, how would you do that last scene? This book ends kind of in medias res. Like mm-hmm. it's an oddly constructed book and that it sort of ends in a way that it has to continue. So I'm wondering if they're going to actually end at that point. I think it would be a hard – I think it would be hard to have that scene and then have her go home and just be crying on her bed and end the movie. Right. Don't you think? That seems hard. It would be – I mean it would be film. read I think by audiences as so blatant a comeback for the next movie to find out what happens next. Well, that's true too them. and we are in this age of the endless sequel. So Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect way to end it because I disagree there because they, everybody's yeah. read – all three. I mean, it, the, you right. know, the no, bestseller right. is one, two, and three, and so right. right. No, you're right. Right. Or there probably would be a scene after the credits where we see Christian Gray alone in his tower, and then he picks up the phone or something. Right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we've solved it already. As the teaser for the next. So one. much for my so much for my concern. Thank well, and you're you. right. You've, you've, you're... you've edited it just right. <laughs> so the sex in the book is obviously more explicit than in most novels that most people read. In most novels, non-romance novels, the sex fades out in the same way it does in a movie and that we see people kissing and then and then we made love or whatever. But I think in a movie, you would just basically treat it the same way. You would have yeah. some sense of like the politics and the various demands being made of each by the other in the sex scenes. But obviously, they're not they're not going to show full penetration in an R-rated You know, this is interesting. Movie. It makes me think of the fact that I hadn't thought about this, damn. but like you were talking about the fade out in movies. But like TV is so explicit about sex. Right. There's so many sex scenes on TV that are just like these scenes in this, I think. But you're right that in movies we don't – it tends to be a little bit less explicit. Now that I'm actually thinking about it, like when he says to her, don't you have a gag reflex? That's <laughs> <was> pretty funny. <laughs> he said in awe. <laughs> That's just so porny. You know? I don't really know how you could <laughs> – Make that happen. In I don't know. They're going to have movies. to make some Also, like, there. while I'm thinking about the language again, she refers to her lady parts as my sex. Like, who does yeah. that? You know, that's just so... There's, there's a lot of weird notes. There's a lot of... She keeps being like, I shall go home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, there's, like, like weird moments. <laughs> well, there's also a lot of Britishisms that have not been yeah. cleaned yeah. up from this. When E.L. James was writing this and posting it on our fan fiction site, she would always post all these messages that were like, thank you to my American friends for helping me with my Americanisms, but she needed more American friends and they needed to do a better job of helping her with her Americanism. Can I ask one quick question? Oh, yeah, yeah. What about Kate and Elliot? I kept waiting for that to go somewhere for something to happen. I, I guess I assume that's I coming. Feel like in mysteries two. are revealed in two, right? That's the one reason I want to keep reading. It's like whatever happens. Something about the boss who she gets a job with. Obviously, there's going to be something with him, the guy with the red yeah. hair and the earrings and yeah. stuff. Something's going to happen with him. But oh, so, Elliot's going to tell her all about Christian, and then Christian's right. going to be furious. What I think I'm going to do is I'm going to wait for someone to post a really great summary on Wikipedia and then read those. But would you yeah. guys read two and three? 
you guys have made me appreciate this novel much more than I did before <laughs> I read it. You know, you've made me think, oh, it's really funny and it's so intentional. And so now I have a, you know, now I feel like, all right, maybe I will read two and three. I mean, it's, it's definitely shitty book, in many though. ways. <laughs> Let's make no mistakes. This is one of the worst written books I've ever read. Can I just read the first page? Yes. The first page? Yes. Just to give you a sense. I scowl with frustration at myself in the mirror. Damn my hair. It just won't behave. And damn Catherine Kavanaugh for being ill and subjecting me toward this ordeal. I should be studying for my final exams, which are next week. Yet here I am trying to brush my hair into submission. Submission. <laughs> I must not sleep with it wet. I must not sleep. Sorry. I can't even read. And then it's like she says the same things over and over again. Like, you know, she explains that she's going to interview her friend, you know, him for her friend. But then, like, the dialogue is awful in a lot of places. Then Kate is huddled on the couch in the living room and she has to explain. I'm sorry. It took me nine months to get this interview. We'll take another six to reschedule and we'll both have graduated by then. And it's like, we've already heard all that. Yeah, I wonder what they'll do in the dialogue for the movie. Like, will he be able to say, you know, I'd really like to claim your ass or, you know, like some of the lines <laughs> that just like too, you know, you couldn't, an actor would have to try really hard not to you, laugh while saying them. You just got to cast it right. You got to right. get someone who can really pull that stuff off. Wait, there's one thing we forgot to talk about, which is that there's a Carl Bernstein joke in this book. There's <laughs> <laughs> she calls Kate Carla that. Bernstein, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I just had to throw that in. Thank you, Hannah, and thank you, Megan, for talking with me about Fifty Shades of Grey. You're welcome. This was really fun. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having us. Laters, baby. Laters. <laughs> the homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash SlateABC. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdullah Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Megan O'Rourke and Hannah Rosen, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.